ইসলাম The uh, topics that we have for you today are, um, uh, so the first one is about uh, deterring com- consumers from buying junk food. So what methods are being put in place uh, to do that? So we'll have a discussion on that from 7.30 a.m. onwards. And uh, we'll be talking to a few uh, guests um, in that segment. And then from about 8.15 a.m. Um, onwards, we shall be talking about the um, the warm spaces that are available um, in the UK uh, from the lens of the current cost of living crisis and the heating um, um, and the heating bills that we're all, um, um, the, the exponential rise, I should say, in the heating bills that we're all seeing. So those are the two topics um, of this morning. Um, as is the norm, we start with the headlines that uh, appear in the newspapers. So the majority of Monday's newspapers lead with the news that Boris Johnson has ruled himself out of the Conservative leadership race. The Daily Express says that Rishi Sunak is set to be crowned the next Prime Minister after Johnson conceded he would not be able to unite the party to govern effectively. The Guardian also leads with the former PM ruling out of the race as a more senior party figures cautioned that Johnson come, Johnson's comeback would lead to chaos and an early election. The paper says Johnson struggled to get the backing of enough conservative MPs. The Daily Mirror says that uh, humiliated Johnson claimed he had the numbers for a return as PM but feared he would split the party. The paper says only Penny Mordaunt now stands in the way of Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak is set to become Prime Minister, according to the Daily Telegraph. The um, a campaign source for Penny Mordaunt told the paper that she would fight on in the leadership race, saying it's looking good. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt endorses Sunak in a piece in the Telegraph comparing him to Winston Churchill in his willingness to speak the truth. Uh, in the I newspaper, the... Um, 
this uh, the story is about the big name Tory um, Tory MPs who've deserted Boris Johnson. The paper says Penny Morton's allies believe she can now pick up the support of Johnson supporters to stay in the race. The Times reports that Boris Johnson accused Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt, who is also standing for the party leadership, of failing to come together in the national interest after they rebuffed his attempts to strike a deal. The paper says Johnson's decision to pull out of the contest means that Sunak could, na- could be named as a distrust successor as soon as today. The Daily Mail says Rishi Sunak is firmly on course to become the new Prime Minister after Johnson dramatically steps aside, saying, I had the numbers, but it's simply not the right time. The Metro says that Boris Johnson sensationally quit in his bid to return to number 10. The paper says that unless Penny Mordaunt finds another 75 nominations within hours, a vote by party members will not go ahead and Sunak will be declared winner at 2pm today. The Sun says that uh, peace talks between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson collapsed on Saturday night without a deal. The paper quotes a Sunak friend who said it's time to unite the party and take the country forward. And the Daily Star reports that fellow Brits uh, hoping for a cold winter of soaring costs to blow over can save money by taking the edge off in Egypt. So those are the headlines appearing in the newspapers today. Once again, a reminder of the two topics that we shall be talking about um, this morning. So the first topic starting at 7.30 a.m. is about new methods um, that are being put in place to deter consumers from buying junk food. And the second topic is about the warm warm spaces that are being uh, put in place uh, to help with people most affected by the cost of living crisis and the um, and the escalation of uh, energy bills. So those are the two topics of the day. Please do join us in uh, in these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. A quick break. And when we come back, we should continue with the discussion on the important topics that are being discussed in newspapers today. of Islam Radio. Bari. 
is a word that emulates the whole of the creation of the universe. Allah calls Himself Al-Bari, the originator, the maker, the evolver, on three occasions in the Holy Qur'an. He is the one who creates from out of nothing. He is not merely the first cause, He is the creator, the maker, the fashioner. And it is He who exercises control over the universe at all times. Al-Bari creates with no model or similarity and evolves that which is in perfect proportion and harmony without any fault. God is the Supreme Being who exists independently of everything else. He is the sole creator of the universe, the maker of the heavens and the earth. No event occurs in the universe without God's knowledge and explicit consent. He is the ultimate source of every action and happening, animate or inanimate. God has not only created the galaxies and stars, but also the life forms of this earth. He is the nourisher and sustainer of all creation. He is their Lord. The holy attribute of Allah, Al-Bari, captures the creation of the whole of the universe. The quality of creating the universe out of nothingness and then perpetuating it into existence. This wonderful attribute aligns perfectly with the current scientific view about the creation of the universe from the Big Bang and its continuous expansion. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih IV, may Allah be pleased with him, shed light on this concept in his book, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth detailing how the Holy Qur'an is the only divine scripture to speak about the continuous expansion of the universe. He states, It should be remembered that the concept of the continuous expansion of the universe is exclusive to the Qur'an. No other divine scriptures even remotely hint at it. The discovery that the universe is constantly expanding is of prime significance to scientists because it helps create a better understanding of how the universe was initially created. It clearly explains the stage-by-stage -stage process of creation in a manner which perfectly falls into step with the theory of the Big Bang the Qur'an goes further and describes the entire cycle of the beginning, the end, and the return again to a similar beginning. Highlighting the unique qualities of Allah, it is all the more important to ponder over this attribute while remembering Allah in order to attain His nearness and favor. This divine attribute, Al-Bari, depicts a wonderful view of the creation of the universe that continues to astound the modern man.
of Islam Radio A new station The Voice of Islam with live discussions religion and culture understand the true teachings of Islam with The Voice of Islam Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you um, Today is Monday the 24th of October 2022 And you're listening to this live edition of the Breakfast of Musa Atlan Suri's Voice of Islam The time is 7.15am And we're still talking about um, the headlines appearing in the newspapers today So we, we just, um, uh, we've gone through the headlines And, and uh, there was one piece actually that um, uh, caught my eye this morning So this is... Uh, um, about the change of political guard in um, in number 10. And uh, this is from BBC's Chris Mason. So he writes um, that with the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson out, the firm favourite to be the new Prime Minister is Rishi Sunak. Unless Penny Morton assembles an army of supporters many times greater than those currently signed up, and between now and lunchtime, Mr Sunak's victory could be confirmed this afternoon. Whatever happens, there will be a new Prime Minister by the end of the week. Yes, a third Prime Minister in seven weeks, he writes. And he further writes, at an unprecedented level of turbulence, a calamitous series of events that most conservatives acknowledge privately has amounted to a circus of absurdity, deeply damaging to their party's reputation. It has been a weekend that had the ring of familiarity to it. For those of us who've reported on events at Westminster for some time, the question not for the first time was this, what will Boris Johnson do next? Having flown back from the Caribbean, he spent Saturday and Sunday doing some attempted telephonic charming, working out how much or how little support he had in the parliamentary party just weeks after they got shot of him. Consistently from Saturday afternoon onwards, his team were briefing that they had the necessary numbers to make the ballot, a cabinet minister, Jacob Reed. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg said so publicly. Another, Chris Heaton-Harris, went further saying the necessary paperwork had been submitted to the party, including verified backers. That meant Mr. Johnson could join the contest. But the reaction to these claims was a reminder of one of the many issues returning Boris Johnson would have faced, put simply, plenty, including on his own side, don't believe a word he says. One of those very MPs did acknowledge to me privately though that things might have been very different if Mr. Johnson had not been facing an inquiry into whether he misled the House of Commons during the lockdown party's rout. 
had he not been facing that investigation, the, the MP suggested he might well be on his way to number 10. But he isn't. And, and he isn't because the numbers just didn't work. It seems at best he had persuaded less than a third of the parliamentary party to support him, which would have meant even a victory would have been Firik and potentially disastrous. He knows what it's like to try to govern without the support of your parliamentary party. Uh, parliamentary party. It doesn't end well. Unquote. So that was the um, um, piece written by Chris Mason this morning uh, in the BBC. Um, Imam Shahzeb, uh, your your thoughts on um, uh, the current change of guards, uh, change of guard, rather um, the fact that we are very close to um, uh, to electing the first non-white. Prime Minister in the in the history of this country. It's a very um, pivotal point in our history, um, and I say pivotal because of the various international, economic, and political instability. We just understood uh, from the past week or so that OPEC is reducing its oil production by two million barrels a day. And that's going to have a huge knock-on effect on the economic um, crisis, which is currently prevalent in various parts of the world, and it will have a further uh, impact. Just think about that, Imam. It's it, 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 you know, it, isn't it so selfish? You know, the world is 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 all, many people are teetering on the verge of um, uh, on on mm. um, on heating versus eating. Mm. Um, Many people um, around the world don't know what to what they'll have as the next meal. Yeah. Um, the energy prices have shot up uh, all across the world, and mm-hmm. yet we have this. Uh, I mean, yeah. Could it be? Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's 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 really hard to understand from uh, your consumer's point of view. But the stance which OPEC is probably looking at is they're looking at you know pre-COVID uh, a barrel was thirty dollars. And now it's $92, $91 per barrel. Mm. And naturally, everybody has this self-interest, you know, at the top of the list. Um, and, you know, this is, this is going to cause a huge knock-on effect. You know, the question earlier you put forward about you know, Rishi potentially being the new prime minister, mm. this will be a huge cause of concern. Um, if already we weren't in a crisis, then this will further exacerbate the situation. So, you know... America being the um, one of the key allies of Saudi, one of the um, biggest producers of oil, has, um, you know, one could say, um, shown signs of um, aggression in terms of potentially sanctioning uh, the OPEC. Um, but naturally, OPEC are, you know, they're, they're too they're big to fail. They're exactly. They're, well, to some extent, yes. And, you know, some sanctions which the US imposes w- won't really affect them. And so what their plan is, from what I've read, is that they want to sanction the insurance companies which provide the insurance for the transportation of the oil via those cargo ships. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that route, because most of those companies are based within the US. Mm-hmm. And that's the angle they're taking. Nonetheless, you know, we'll see what happens. Um because it's going to be very, um, very negative on the economic growth. Um, we've just, I just understood that the the pound has gone up since. You know, Rishi has gained some, um, you know, positive uh, influence over the 
Tory party members who wished for him to come forward as a new Prime Minister. So, you know, God willing, the overall um, facade of the country does improve and um, the overall understanding is that, you know, if Rishi does come and become the new Prime Minister come the f- Friday, then hopefully, you know, we'll find a, a positive change within the overall um, economic and indeed um, financial situation of the country at large because right now you know with the energy prices going up with Tesco announcing I think it was last week we said that their prices are going to go up um, mm-hmm. what was that uh, the um, the meal deal that's gone up since um, the last time that went up was a decade ago the meal deal um, mm-hmm. so all of these things we have to bear in mind and hopefully Rishi can you know because if Rishi can't then who is there absolutely I, I think that's that's where the Conservative Party actually find themselves in that's a predicament I should say mm. that many Conservative Party members I think find themselves uh, in at the moment uh, Boris Johnson has just uh uh, has announced that he's uh, he's not in the race anymore. Benny Mordaunt is not able to gather the numbers. There is nobody else uh, other than Rishi there. So yeah, I, I really wish uh, you know if if it does become a reality by two p.m. today, then um, uh, really hope um, that uh, you know Rishi is able to uh, to prove to be the prime minister that uh, this country deserves and. Uh, uh, that people of this country actually need um, uh, in these very difficult times. It's, um, uh, you know, uh, what what he ends up doing or how he ends up performing, um, uh, nobody knows. But one thing's for sure that I don't think there's anybody at the moment, anybody else in the top leadership in uh, the Conservative Party or actually in the Labour Party, I should say as well, who uh, understands uh, the economy or who is uh, uh, better placed to to head the government um, uh, at this time, he's uh, you know he's worked in the city. He's been the chancellor in the most uh, tumultuous period uh, of the economy, and he and he led the economy well at that time. He did. Um, mm. You know, uh, he brought about those the furlough scheme, the furlough scheme, the help out, eat out scheme. Exactly. You know those. Um, the bounce back loans or what have you so many initiatives which, which saved save the exact hmm, many many people many many companies are saved so we have to give him credit for that um, but on the flip side like you mentioned you know the Labour Party said Keir Starmer we don't really know yes he was the chief crown prosecutor uh, before taking the role as the opposition leader but um, you know it's um, soon going to miss really um, if it doesn't really work out if, he, if there is a general election that is so um, and he comes to power so you know, our ardent prayer is that, you know, the country does go back to where it was, um, you know, and there is um, affluence and buoyancy within our uh, mm. economy. And, um, you know, we go back to the um, the good old days, as it were, because currently, you know, the situation is very bleak. Um, I mean, just take the um, couple of days back or, in fact, a week ago when the um, the fracking vote was taking place and there was absolute chaos what the MPs report. There was. Um, something out of... Um, you know, like a movie or something, or even, dare I say, a developing country. Hmm. Um, because the United Kingdom is sort of the flag bearer for democracy, hmm. a successful democracy. So if the situation here is very, you know, uh, bleak and very, um, you know, unstable, then what does that show um, to the rest of the world, really? So, you know, hopefully Rishi 
you know, bring, comes in and brings about the changes that we need. And um, this is all um, left in the past. Right. Uh, quickly moving on to sport. Um, uh, the T20 World Cup, Cricket World Cup, is taking mm-hmm. place in, in Australia. There was a, a big match yesterday. Very, uh, an understatement. Of <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and that's not... You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, this is... Uh, uh, a couple of Australian commentators actually who were there yeah. actually um, in the stadium said that they have never seen the, that kind of atmosphere in MCG ever, yeah. even in a rugby match, which uh, which uh, which also take take place um, within the MCG. So a big match, a huge match there, and uh, went to the last ball. Yeah, literally, literally to the last ball with ninety more than ninety thousand present within the stadium. Mm-hmm. And you know what can be said. Um, Pakistan batting lineup, as usual, made some hiccups. Had some hiccups rather. You know the middle order never really worked, apart from you know one off player Iftikhar, the openers who we heavily relied on, um, Babar Azam and Mohammad Rizwan didn't really um, put the numbers that we required. And um, I think I don't know how they managed the one five nine total that they yeah, made. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. The, in the end, they did. Yeah, a, a, a compatible. Um, yeah, sort they of did manage number, to put yeah. some good number, a, a decent good number, number yeah. a par score. They said um, on on that pitch. Yeah, um, and then you know the star of the second innings was unbelievable by uh, Pakistan. Oh. You know the, the bowling side, which we are renowned for. Um, you know us being Pakistanis. Um, you know, a great catch by Iftikhar, um, the slip, um, various other, Mohamed Nawaz, not Mohamed Nawaz, sorry, um, uh, Nawaz Shah, I think, uh, you know, t- took a, um, a wicket earlier on and three, four others. So, Naseem Shah. Naseem Shah even. Right. Um, so a, a brilliant start uh, by the bowlers. And then it's, as it went on and on, um, you know, Virat Kohli came in, who we, you know, um, have to mention. He played a fantastic innings, um, a great knock. Yeah. You know, more or less took India past the line, crossed the line, um, and, and won because of did, his yeah. great performance. Um, you know, our best bowlers, um, Harris Ralph, uh, Shaheen, uh, Fridi, um, yeah. you know, various others, you know, failed to um, uh, take him out effectively. Um, and literally went to the last over, I think, it was 80, 16 or 18 required from the last 18, over, 18 even required oh. from the last over, which is a tall ask. Um, and so much drama, you know, no balls, wide. There was a wicket of um, DK, what's his name, Kartik. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and at one point, um, there was a no ball, which we weren't aware of as the viewers, and Vinod Kohli got bowled out. Um, but obviously yeah. that doesn't count, and they crossed. And then Ashwin came in, and Ashwin played the last ball, mm. and it was one ball required of one run, and you know what an end, what a dramatic end. Yeah, what a dramatic end to a very, very dramatic uh, match. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I, you know, you've got to give it to Kohli there. He, yeah, he batted brilliantly. He's, I think he's the reason why they. He's won. a class act. Uh, yeah. he, you know, he is one of the best batsmen in the world, if not the best. And yeah. and yesterday was the the innings of his life. Right. Uh, he said that uh, the best uh, has to be uh, really up there in terms of whatever he's played. And and. Um, you know, he showed his class. He 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 batted so maturely. He didn't play one risky shot yeah. right until the seventeenth over. And India were under tremendous pressure, and he was under tremendous pressure. And and yet, you know, his composure, um, 
the way he um, uh, the way he attempted um, the whole chase uh, in such a measured way. I think you've yeah. just got to give it was his day. I, I don't oh, think yeah. anybody would have um, would have been able to do anything with it. I think we can criticize Nawaz, we can criticize the Pakistanis, we can criticize uh, the bowlers, uh, we can talk about the captaincy, whatever. But I mm. yeah, I just feel that it was his day. Yeah, it was. And it was his day to shine. It was the best innings of his life and he just uh, showed what a true class act he is. It's so true. It's so true. I mean, both his partners, um, I mean, whoever came in, um, you know, sort of struggled, and he was sort of that, that standing at the pillar, um, and he played it with so much composure, so true. There was so much pressure; it's unbelievable. Mm. The run rate was increasing. You yes. know, they needed a, at least a boundary. Had gone up to twelve. Yeah, by twelve exactly. Four so. four top uh, batsmen out. Yeah, you know, required uh, run a run rate of twelve and over. And he, uh, you know, uh, anybody else yeah. uh, would have played, would have tumbled or would have played a risky shot trying to hit a six or something. But he didn't. He, he didn't, you know, yeah. he just played so maturely. Yeah. An absolute. Um, I think that is. Um, it's uh, made him into a legend yeah, for yeah. the team. For well, he sure. already is a legend, yeah. I think. Um, uh, in, if in, there were any doubts. I, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's he's an absolute. And that, I think, is, is is uh, to me, that inning is really a, a textbook innings. That innings should be shown in to all youngsters who are aspiring to, bunk, yeah. to become crit- cricketers. Um, to um, For them to learn how to attempt... Uh, a chase, a a, a, a very, um, a, an incredible chase yeah. in such a measured way. And, and, you know, the fact that it's such a high pressurized game, you know, mm. Pakistan and India, mm. um, I think the most watched or anticipated game there is yeah. in the world of cricket. So, yeah, for sure, there's so many lessons in that game. Right. Uh, that brings us to the end of this segment on. Um, uh, news and uh, and sport and we shall now take a very quick break and when we come back we will delve right into the first topic which is about new methods which are being put in, into place to deter consumers from buying junk food. Please do stay tuned. As you all know that uh, in the previous segment we were uh, discussing about the headlines and uh, the potential going to be the Prime Minister, uh, next Prime Minister of UK and um, some talk about... um, 
the sports, uh, especially the ICC T20 World Cup. So in this segment, um, uh, we are going to discuss about the new methods in players uh, to deter consumers from buying of junk food. So the gist of the story is in an attempt to limit consumption of uh, junk food from 1st October 2022, shops are limited with regards to where they can display junk foods. They will, there, there will be no longer. Be, they will no longer be allowed to display junk foods near entrances or tills, and a similar rule of uh, multi-buy deals on junk food being banned will come into effect in October 2023. Um, according to the Sky News uh, reporter uh, Connor Septon, uh, who wrote that the ban on multi-buys is delayed. Uh, due to families being hard-pressed in the current climate uh, to enable families to take advantage of such deals. Retailers are reported to be frustrated by the government's rushed approach to policy development and indecision about implementation dates. Uh, Chief Executive of Food and Drinks Federation, uh, Karen Betts, uh, said, Our industry looks forward to continuing to work with the government to help tackle obesity and poor diets. The Federation is aiming to redevelop recipes of food and drink to keep the delicious flavors, uh, to keep the delicious flavors, but keep it healthy. Uh, but Barbara uh, Crowther of the Children's Food uh, Campaign said she was disappointed by the delay and argued that multi-buy deals actually result in people spending 22% more on impulsive bulk purchases of less healthy food and drink. Right, thank you very much uh, for that introduction. Let's go uh, now to our first guest of the show, um, Mark Jones, who is food and drink expert and partner at uh, the law firm Gordon's. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Morning. Thank you very much, uh, Mark, for joining us. Um, do you think banning multiply deals and removing junk food from entrances and tills will help tackle obesity and poor diets? Well, there's, there's little evidence to suggest that it will um, in terms of the manner in which the bans have come into force. So gondola ends, uh, aisle ends, um, entrances and um, there's not there's not a huge amount of evidence to support that those particular bans will reduce calorie consumption but but um, there's I suppose two good reasons why you might do that the first is that obesity is a problem and therefore greater exposure to those types of products is likely to is likely to result in increased purchasing from consumers. And the second, and probably the most important from my perspective, is that bans on those types of positioning and multipliers, which I heard your you guest talking about a moment ago, um, drives change from a production perspective, so reformulation. And we've already seen the manufacturers of these products reformulating their products so they can be positioned in those places. That reformulation results in products with fewer calories, and that's the way we tackle obesity. What other regulations do you think can be put in place to tackle obesity? Well, I think that regulations akin to this and akin to the sugar tax, which you might remember from a few years ago, a, 
a tax was introduced on soft drinks. So if you if you have five grams of sugar per a hundred millilitres, um, then you are you have to add a sugar tax to the drink. And and it's interesting because it's a similar point I was making previously about how brands react to these moments. Is that it, it, it's not necessarily the case that the tax itself results in a change in consumer behaviour, but it's the brands that react which results in a change in consumer behaviour, almost innocently by the consumers. That research done about sugar taxes has shown a, um, a reduced calorie intake by about 6,500 calories per person. Now that, that's not because they've changed what they're buying, it's because the products they're buying have less sugar in them and therefore less calories. So I think I think tax would also be a good way of um, reducing calorie intake, particularly at this moment in time, because people are price sensitive. Uh, Mark, can you give us an insight on the major causes of obesity? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that you know the major causes to obesity are, are relatively straightforward. Um, People talk about genetics and, and things like that, but there's, there's no evidence to suggest there's there's, um, there's any any um, major conditions which lead to obesity. The, the simple fact is we, we eat too much and we, we move too little. Um, you know, and if you read what the you know, Public Health England or the NHS say about the causes of obesity, it, it really is that simple. You know, the food we consume can often be very calorie dense, and, and frankly, we don't as a population um, focus sufficiently on exercise. So if, if we're to tackle it, for me, the solution is education, education at a school level. What do you eat? How many calories are you consuming? What, what, is, what does good food look like? And how many calories do you need? And, and the second point is you know, reinforcing the importance of exercise. Mark, what are your thoughts on um uh, on the retailers um, expressing frustration um, around the government's rushed approach to policy development and indecision in about implementation? I think indecision is a big, a big issue, um, and I have a great deal of sympathy with the retailers about about indecision. You know, we can look at lots of different regulations. Um, the um, Deposit return scheme, which is regulations relating to the return of plastic bottles and, and when that's coming in, um, the government have flipped up that over periodically uh, on on HFSS regulations. Uh, of course, there was a long tail to that, but at the eleventh hour, we had um, the suggestion coming out of the government that they were going to scrap the regulations altogether. And prior to that, of course, we had a shift in the date the regulations come in with Boris Johnson's government to, um, removing the ban on multi-buy options or delaying it, should I say, by about 12 months. Now, the, the, the retailers, you know, there's big impacts to how they organize their stores, how they organize their commercial pa- uh, plan for a year, because it isn't quite as straightforward as people might think. Retailers don't just buy um, Kellogg's Frosties and stick them on the shelf. They have commercial arrangements which sit behind just buying those goods relating to what financial support that business might give them. So, will they do promotions on those products like multi bands 
uh, sorry, multi-buys, will they put them on gondola ends and there'll be payments made as a, as a result of that which um, allow Kellogg's to promote their products. So, so changing the rules at the 11th hour doesn't help retailers in their planning and it, it has, a, of course, administration and a cost burden as a consequence. So I've got a lot of sympathy with retailers about about that change. Um, I don't have much sympathy for them in relation to the principle itself. You know, obesity in this country is at crisis levels um, and something has to be done. And yes, that might mean, you know, might mean have to sell less, um, Cadbury's chocolate bars in a year, but but frankly, that's good for for our country. So I think we we um, we have to follow through on these things. So where 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 do you uh, again sit on the argument uh, that you know this is a free free society that people should have uh, the right to choose, and um, ultimately it's about education and about um, uh, people. Uh, people knowing what choices to make as opposed to the government interfering? Well, I mean, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. It is a free society and people should have the right to choose. But until we tackle the issue of good education um, in our school systems and in our adult population, there has to be some immediate, react, uh, immediate action to, to mitigate the forces we're against. You know, educating several generations about the importance of good nutrition and exercise is something which isn't going to happen overnight. And in the meantime, we have a, you know, we have two thirds of the adult population overweight. And that costs, you know, that costs, um, that costs the government about 27 billion as a societal issue and it costs the NHS about 6 billion. Um, you know, that's, that, those figures, exceed what it costs us to run our criminal justice system so yes you know it is a free society and and we you know we should allow people to eat bad food if they want to there's, there's no such thing as bad food there's just bad diets um but up until until we're at a point where consumers are making the right choices because they understand the choices they make have consequences for them and their children the government should do what they can to uh, assist people in making those decisions and, and that, that assistance comes from forcing brands to reformulate to reduce to reduce the calories in them and and, and removing temptation to a degree where you're you know uh, I mean impulse buying of course the evidence isn't there but um, to the extent that people make impulse purchases and the wrong impulse purchases if that can be influenced then that that too seems to me like a good thing to do so you think this um, um, this measure to um, uh, to require shops to limit what they can display near entrances and tails is uh, is a good step forward? Well, I I think I suppose the short answer is yes, mm-hmm. um, but only because I think inaction isn't a solution. I, I don't think I don't think the evidence supports that positional displays necessarily result in reduced calorie consumption. I think the evidence is patchy. Yeah. But but we do have to do something to tackle um, you know, an, an obesity crisis in this country. So I, I think a, a great number of small measures, and they may have limited effects, but we do have to do things 
uh, otherwise the cost burden our society becomes increasingly worse and frankly you know we, we all die early because we'll suffer from obesity related illnesses and you know like diabetes like heart attacks and those are things that I don't think any of us want. Excellent thank you very much Mark uh, for joining us this morning um, really enjoyed talking to you have a great day. Thank you have a great day. And you bye-bye so that was uh, Mark Jones from um, a food and drink expert um, at law firm Gordon's um, uh, giving us his take on um, you know on, uh, on on what's actually happening um, and and what needs to happen around uh, tackling obesity um, and whatnot uh, how big do you think is the um, um, would the right word be crisis around uh, around obesity and or what a challenge probably one should say around obesity I think it's huge, especially here, um, you know, in the UK, because in the UK there are primarily so many um, fast food takeaways and, um, you know, these restaurants which are on everyone's doorsteps. So it's you know very easy for us just to go down there and eat um, and consume those, you know, junk foods. And that's why, you know, it's um, very much so important that we aren't, you know, uh, enclosed in that trap whereby you know um, that is our first calling um, and the sort of harder option is uh, to pre- prepare something healthy um, because nowadays it's all about convenience and comfort um, which shouldn't really be um, the choice um, bearing in mind on our, our self-interest um, so otherwise it would be very detrimental that's why and there was a sugar tax involved in um, you know the various drinks um, which was brought about to be I guess a form of a deterrence Right, let's go uh, now to Hattie Bird, who is a registered associate nutritionist and a policy and communications officer at Action on Sugar and Salt. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be with you. A warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So tell us a little bit about um, uh, Action on Sugar and Salt. Sure. Um, so our aim is to improve health by reducing unnecessary salt, sugar and excess calories in our diet. And we do this in the UK and through our work internationally. We produce world-leading research on salt and health and we regularly conduct surveys of different food categories to shine a light on their salt and sugar content to see which companies are doing the best when it comes to producing healthy, nutritious food and to see who still had a long way to go. Um, we also work to influence government to try and bring in policies to make our food environment more conducive to eating healthy and affordable food. Yeah, so my question is that uh, why is obesity uh, becoming uh, more of a concerning matter to the extent that we have to take national measures and you know what kind of um, what are the adverse effects of obesity that many are unaware of yeah well we've, we've actually needed to bring in national measures for years we've had lots of strategies from government that actually getting those policies implemented has proven difficult Um, In the last 20 years, the proportion of adults in England with obesity has doubled. And now, even even for children, so two in five children in England now leave primary school above a healthy weight. Mm. 
and this is because it's not down to individual choice which is which it often is talked about but it's the environment that we live in that makes it very difficult if not impossible to eat healthily you know our supermarkets and food delivery apps are packed with unhealthy foods at high in salt high in sugar and companies take every opportunity to advertise their unhealthy products to us and to our children. Um, these foods are also relatively less expensive and more convenient compared to buying fresh food. So it's no surprise that that's what we're eating. Um, so really, it's the food industry controlling what we eat, not us, and we need to change that. Um, when it comes to, to, to you know, the adverse effects of obesity, um, children with obesity are five times more likely to become adults with obesity. Um, and that increases our risk of developing conditions like type 2 diabetes, cancer, heart disease, also liver disease. Um, and children from more deprived areas are more than twice as likely to have obesity than their more affluent counterparts. So there are clear and growing in inequalities um, based on income. As and well that, as, the, oh, just, to, just to say that this, that's our personal cost to our health, there's also knock-on effects to the cost of the NHS, etc. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's a very, very pertinent point, uh, especially in the current climate where um, it's sort of the winter season and you know the flu is on the rise. Um, Hansi, do you think measures of limiting junk food advertisements and multi-buy deals are of any use? Yes, they're, they're, they're crucial. And measures like these are sometimes, you know, talked about as being too nanny state, but that really misunderstands, it just fundamentally misunderstands their purpose. They're about shaping the environment to make it easier for us to eat healthier food and as with any policies you need you know it's not not one policy is never going to solve it but it's it's about it's about um having a range of policies to influence that environment and but with advertising food companies spend millions every year marketing their products um trying to keep junk food in the spotlight and they wouldn't do that if advertising didn't work and and we see i think almost half of tv adverts are for unhealthy food products and it's even higher during that sort of early evening time when children's viewing peaks so yeah controlling that that advertising is, is really important and it doesn't those measures like that wouldn't that it doesn't ban advertising it's about incentivizing food manufacturers to make their food healthier so it can be advertised and and it, it it also applies only to large companies, so it's not hurting small small businesses. Um, when it comes to multi-buy deals, um, these are sometimes misrepresented. They're actually designed by food um, the food industry to make us buy more and to eat more than we want, and they end up with people spending 22% more than they otherwise would have, um, not less. So. They're not those measures have been delayed at the minute, but they actually lead to people spending more money and uh, not saving money. And, and Hansi, what other aspects of diet uh, and need of our lifestyles can we control within our own households to help tackle obesity? 
Well, it's not quite the answer to the question, but all the evidence shows that losing weight is one of the hardest things to do, rarely successful in the long term. And that's because the easiest and cheapest, most marketed foods are those unhealthy ones. So it's less about us as individuals changing behavior. We need the whole food environment to change so that eating healthy food is easy and affordable and convenient. Um, so I guess I'd say maybe write to your MP, they're here to uh, here for us, uh, here to serve us. So ask them to prioritize children's health, um, ask them to bring in measures to restrict advertising of unhealthy foods to children. That's what I'd say. Thank you so much, Hattie Burt. A pleasure being with us this morning, and thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Hattie Burt, a registered associate nutritionist and a policy and communications officer at Action on Sugar and Salt. Um, so I think it's very interesting the points that she's made. Um, and it's I think it's a growing issue, especially in these countries where food is so readily available. Uh, you know, we look at other parts of the world and we somewhat ponder um, as to how the disparities can be so vast and wide. Um, but I guess um, it's just the overall um, um, economic differences, really. Um, and, you know, yes, food is a definitely a blessing of Allah the Almighty, but anything in excess from an Islamic point of view certainly has its repercussions. And indeed, um, you know, excess of anything is detrimental to our health and well-being. Um, so it's very much important that, you know, we listen to our experts, our nutritionists, um, our doctors, and make sure that we live the healthy and indeed wealthy lifestyle, whereby we can sort of um, increase the longevity of our, you know, experience here on Earth. And indeed, by doing so, we can promote um, not only our own well-being, but the well-being of our, you know, fellow counterparts and indeed our brothers and sisters, um, which is the goal and the objective which Islam promotes. Um, so that would be, I think, very interesting nonetheless um, to see how this pans out as the years progress as I can only see more franchises and indeed shops which sell these, um, you know, the, the junk food um, increases um, and the awareness is there. It's not like the awareness isn't there. There's so much advertisements, um, you know, so much facts, uh, there's so much knowledge generally um, about making sure that we um, have a healthier um, diet than they were many years ago. Right. Um, let's talk about the... Um, uh, let's look at uh, the uh, this topic uh, through the Islamic lens in um, a little more detail. Um, we are coming up to the 8 o'clock news. Um, so let's take a break now. Um, and when we come back, let's uh, delve further into what... Um, uh, what Islam uh, would uh, uh, would suggest, or the injunctions within the um, Islamic context as to how about uh, living uh, a healthy life. So a lot more on this uh, right after these messages and the news break. Persecuted for your beliefs, jailed for your faith, and exiled from your homeland but you refuse to turn to bitterness or vengeance. Instead, His Holiness has emerged as a leader of wisdom and compassion, a champion of nonviolence among nations. No society can truly succeed unless it guarantees the rights of all of its peoples, including religious minorities. Whether they're Ahmadiyya, Muslims in Pakistan, or Baha'i in Iran, or Coptic Christians in Egypt. 
I would like very much to confirm my support for the work that His Holiness and the Ahmadi Muslim community are doing, particularly in London. Even I didn't know when I was elected, then my name even will be proposed. The election is the same as the Pope is elected, but without smoke. I know you are a regular uh, visitor and speaker to parliaments and assemblies around the world, whether it's the US Congress or the, or the European Parliament. Let it be clear that I am not speaking in support or favor of any particular individual country. What I wish to say is that all forms of cruelty, wherever they exist, must be eradicated and stopped, regardless of whether they are perpetrated by the people of Palestine, the people of Israel, or the people of any other country. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. I'm very glad that the movement like yours will do something to correct this image. Islam means peace. I should thank Your Holiness for your highly enlightened sermon, not only uh, for the Ahmadis, but I would say for all mankind. Love for all and hatred for none. And this message not only for Muslims, but for everybody. You are a man, though of humble beginnings, your leadership has made you a figure of global prominence. And you have become a guide for millions of Muslims worldwide. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome to the live edition of Breakfast Show from Voice of Islam. So, yeah, as you know, we were talking about uh, the junk food and its impact and 
the uh, growing obesity rate uh, in the UK and its effect. So now we are going to look upon, uh, look upon at this uh, matter uh, through the lens of uh, Islamic view. So we're going to talk about uh, what Islam stands on uh, on the diet and its effect. So when we look uh, to the Holy Quran and the teachings of the um, uh, from the Messiah uh, and the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon you uh, upon him all. The uh, we found a very profound um, uh, teachings and uh, and very uh, deep, um, you know, insight uh, regarding this matter. So Islam provides uh, guidance for uh, you know for a pure and healthy life. So uh, regarding this, the Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran, He has made unlawful to you only that which uh, dies of itself and blood and the flesh of swine and that on which the name of any other than uh, Allah the Almighty has been invoked but he who is driven by necessity being neither disobedient nor exceeding the limit it shall be no sin for him surely Allah is most forgiving merciful uh, chapter 2 verse 173 to 174 so the first three categories uh, which are uh, you know uh, which the thing which dies from of itself, the blood and the flesh of swine, these categories are prohibited because they are harmful to the body, and that which is uh, you know harmful to the body is harmful to the spirit, uh, according to the Islamic uh, Islamic perspective. Uh, the last prohibition, uh, which is uh, you know uh, anything any flesh or upon. Uh, which the name of Allah has been uh, other than the name of Allah has been invoked uh, relates to something which is directly harmful morally and spiritually as it's uh, as it mounts uh, to association of others with God Allah has made the provision that uh, a believer may use prohibited food if absolutely necessary i.e. if it is a matter of life and death uh, uh, there are two terms, uh, halal and tayyib, used in the Holy Quran to guide about uh, foods. The term halal means that which is lawful for you. Uh, does halal meats is that which has been slaughtered in the name of Allah and has had the blood drained out from it. Sometimes some foods are not permitted by the laws of the countries. So even a halal item may become under the not permitted category. The, th the term uh, the term tayyib means pure, wholesome and acquired by legal and ethical means. The Holy Quran lays a great emphasis on this aspect of food as well. Uh, foods which are decayed or spoiled are forbidden uh, because uh, they have a very uh, deep dire uh, 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 side effects on the on one's um, health. Uh, the term haram means that which is unlawful for you and includes blood, pork, and alcohol. Um, Islam teaches that the condition of the body affects uh, the condition of the spirit, and thus great care should be taken to keep one's body healthy and fit. Islam further teaches that all food should be taken in moderation and nothing should be indulged into excess. 
Um, furthermore, intoxicants and drugs are forbidden. Any food which becomes addictive enters into the forbidden category. Uh, or regarding this um, uh, teachings which we found in the Holy Quran, when we look up to the life of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, we found uh, you know really profound teachings regarding this matter. As uh, we found one of his companions saying that uh, the Messenger of Allah said that food for one person suffices for two, uh, food for two persons suffices four persons, and four food for four persons uh, suffices eight persons. Uh, yeah. So likewise, you know, uh, as uh, I was saying that there are two terms which are used uh, in the Holy Quran, uh, the halal and tayyib. So normally when when we look uh, upon uh, the our daily, you know, diet, we just try to go with the thing that uh, this is good for me and this is not good for me, for my health or for my diet. Uh, so for this, uh, the Holy Quran has used the term Tayyib. So not only the Holy Quran used the word Halal, but uh, when we go into the depth of this um, this thing, we the Holy Quran tells us to use uh, to eat Tayyib things, which are you know uh, pure and for the for the well-being of uh, one's own diet, one's own uh, you know physical health. And uh, uh, as in Islam, uh, according to the Islamic perspective, we believe that uh, the diet, uh, the physical, you know, thing has uh, has a direct impact on one's um, inner self, one's spirit. So, uh, I would say that uh, while commenting on this verse, as we found in the Holy Quran, that uh, eat good things and do the uh, good work so it has a direct you know connotation uh, with doing good things as well it has a direct connotation with the morals of one's one's being and that's why uh, commenting on this uh, verse um, one of the caliph of the amdiya muslim community has said that uh, that one shouldn't uh, especially the um, uh, higher stage of uh, higher status of Muslims uh, shouldn't just go with the thing that this is the, uh, this is the halal thing and this is the haram thing. Rather, they just go with the. Uh, rather, they should try to act upon the each and every teachings of the Holy Quran, like you know, uh, following as uh, the Holy Quran has said that uh, you shouldn't eat halal things. You shouldn't try to eat um, tayyib things. And. You're so true. Um, you're exactly right. Because Islam has been a religion which always has promoted this belief of um, making sure that whatever we consume has a, a great effect on um, our overall being. Um, you know, the time old saying that you are what you eat, and it's very much so pertinent. Um, but we'll take a short break now, and after the break, we'll uh, wrap up this segment and uh, start off with the next segment. Um, so don't go anywhere. Allah, Akbar, Allah. 
akbar Allahu akbar Allahu akbar Ashhadu an la أشهد أن محمد You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhisalam. A wonderful revelation was vouchsafed to me in Urdu in 1868 or 1869. It happened in this way. Molvi Abu Sayyid Muhammad Hussain of Batala, who had at one time been my fellow student, came back to Batala after completing his divinity studies. The people of Batala looked askance at him on account of some of his notions and ideas. One person was very insistent that I should debate a point in dispute with Molvi Muhammad Hussain. Yielding to his insistence, I accompanied this man in the evening to the home of Mulvi Muhammad Hussain and found him in the company of his father in the mosque. To summarize, upon hearing the explanation of Mulvi Muhammad Hussain, I concluded that there was nothing objectionable in his statement, and consequently, for the sake and pleasure of Allah, I declined to enter into a debate with him. The same night, the revelation came to me from Allah the Noble, with reference to my declining to enter into the debate. Tera khuda tere is fail se razi hua aur wo tujhe bahut barkat dega. Yahan tak ke badshah tere kapdon se barkat dhoonenge. Your God is well pleased with what you have done. He will bless you greatly, so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments. Thereafter in a vision I was shown those kings. They were riding upon horses. Since my attitude of humility and lowliness was adopted purely for the sake of God and His Messenger وسلم, Allah the Perfect Benevolent did not desire to leave it unrewarded. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show here at the Voice of Islam. And before the break, we were talking about the the overall uh, consumption of junk food, uh, which has been on the rise, um, and how it's having a dramatic effect on the overall uh, well being of various um, members of our society um, and we're you know, talking about the new methods which are in place to actually deter the consumers from buying you know, said junk food um, and we've also touched upon the Islamic point of view Let's see what Islam has to say um, on the consumption of food in general um, and you know how Islam in actuality gives us a guideline um, as to how one should live a very healthy life and 
With that, we conclude uh, that segment and we swiftly move on to our next segment, which is just as interesting. And that's about what are Britain's warm spaces. Warm spaces, I hear you say. Yes, warm spaces. Warm spaces um, is um, very prevalent to um, the times that we are in. Um, you know, whilst many homes are worrying as to how they will keep their um, homes warm over the winter, venues such as the Greenside Cricket Club have signed up to be warm spaces for people and these venues will provide people who are struggling with their warm space communities are coming together to face just one of the many financial dilemmas people are facing with the current living crisis there are 65 venues in the borough of uh, gatestead that have signed up to be warm spaces these spaces are for people who find it difficult to find a warm shelter for winter there are similar schemes all over the uk that do the same thing and the different names and to tackle the problem of the current living crisis. And these spaces have somewhere to charge phones, games and books, and even snacks. And other venues include churches, sports clubs and community centres. Two in three households will be struggling by January to keep up with the current living crisis as per Citizens Advice Bureau. Approximately 24 million households are to struggle across the UK. And even Citizens Advice Bureau's volunteers will not be able to work for them anymore because they have to cut their home broadband off to save money. So it's a very dire situation, uh, to say the least. Um, but a, a, um, a proactive, I guess, um, solution. Now... We're aware of inflation, rising interest rates, petrol and diesel. Everything is costing more than it did just last year. Um, Due to this, two in three households are struggling to meet essential household bills in January. With rocketing inflation and growing costs of living crisis, low-income households will be the most affected. We find that the average low-income family with children would see their take-home income fall by a total of around £1,600 from October 2022 to April 2023 without additional support. Loan parents will also see their income fall by about £1,000 and single households by £560. In samples from over 114,000 low-income households on housing benefit or council tax support in six local authorities across different regions in the UK from July 22 has resulted in the energy bills, uh, which will be up to nine times higher for larger families, and single households won't have enough money to meet essential costs in October 2022. Couples with children would see the highest monthly energy bill, and on average, uh, low-income households will need £806 more to meet rising costs by April 2023. So very, very stark and very dire picture um, of the um, living cost of uh, crisis. Uh, yes, um, <clears throat> let's uh, go now straight to uh, Ian McClintock, who is from Charity Excellence. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace with you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Ian, can you hear us? I think we probably need to, to make another attempt to um, uh, uh, to connect again with uh, Ian McClintock uh, from Charity Excellence, but yes, um, you know, talking about the um, uh, the cost of living crisis, I think yeah, people are really feeling the the pinch now. It's uh, you know, he- heating bills has uh, have certainly gone up, um, 
um, and um, you know it's it's a lot more expensive now to put food on the table. It certainly is, and you know these numbers they speak volumes, um, and they will certainly you know burden uh, as we were talking the lower income. Um, families and it's very much so um alarming to say the least that's why it's um you know we were talking uh, talking earlier on about the new prime minister coming in uh, by this friday you'll have a huge task um to resolve um the the issue of the, the cost of living and um it's no easy feat by any means because you know these are sort of the um mm. the the most expensive ex- expenditures of any household you know, your your energy bills and indeed your um, your shopping, um, your, your weekly shopping. So, you know, there will have to be at least um, some form of relief or sucker which is granted to the consumer. Right, absolutely. Let's make another attempt to see if we can now connect with Ian McClintock from uh, Charity Excellence. Asalaamu Alaikum, Ian, can you hear us? No, probably not still there. Right. Okay. Yeah. So let's continue with um, uh, with our discussion. Um, uh, how how significant do you think is this? Uh, um, is is the cost of living crisis? I mean, we we use this term pretty loosely these days. Um, yeah. A lot of people talk about it, but uh, you know, is it uh, energy bills? Is uh, is is obviously um, a huge part of it. But uh, you know. Everything. I mean, you look at people that are on variable yeah. mortgages. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, th- they've increased by two, three hundred pounds a month. Couple that with the energy costs, you know, which have also gone up. Um, it's incredible. You know, for some families, there's been around about two thousand pounds more a month which they have to spend. Um, and by no means have you know incomes gone up as one would have hoped. And on the other side, we see so many redundancies. Um, so many people being laid off. You know, Royal Mail announced, I think, a couple of weeks ago, six thousand employees are to be let go. Um, so many strikes which are happening, all because of the cost of living. Um, you know, by no means are we you know, scaremongers, um, but this is the reality of the economy, and you know, we find similar a similar situation um, across the ocean in America, our counterparts, where there's an equally um, you know, dire situation, albeit there, uh, their rates of inflation is at I think eight point nine, and where we've just gone past ten. Um, so, you know, we hope and pray that certainly there is a resolution. Um, uh, you know, a, a one which will certainly help everyone, uh, because it, we simply cannot keep at this um, pace. And um, if we do so, then um, you know, people are really talking about recession. So um, we'll have to certainly. Um, as a nation come together and you know this initiative of warm spaces is one but really that's a temporary one um, we need you know a proactive solution bought by the um, new prime minister and hopefully there is one right i believe um andrew brown sir is uh, now on the line he's chairman of bali mo village hall in gateshead assalamu alaikum um andrew can you hear us yeah, good morning. It's a good morning. Uh, peace be with you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the pleasure is uh, is absolutely mutual. So thank you very much for taking time out uh, this morning. So, Andrew, um, uh, what? how significant, in your opinion, is, is the cost of living crisis, energy bills in particular, and um, uh, the, the warm spaces uh, work that you're doing? I think it's it's really 
very bad situation, especially mm. in our area of, uh, of Burley. Uh, there is a lot of poverty, and people are really struggling. And I think the Warm Spaces Initiative is is a help to people, but it's a band-aid. Um, mm. It's you know, it's something that we actually have to finance. So, I mean, we're we're a, uh, a community um, a community hall. And we're a charity, so we have to fund everything that we do. Um, I mean, Gateshead Council have been very good with um, giving us initial funding for equipment and things. Um, The only way we can actually afford to do that is to go to local businesses who have been good enough to back us to actually be able to finance warm spaces. Um, A lot of the smaller halls and things like that are sort of offering an area of warmth with a cup of tea and a biscuit. But quite frankly, I don't think that cuts it for these people that have, you know, massive problems actually finding food. And we now do a day a week where we invite people to the hall uh, for a warm space and also a decent meal. Um, We do uh, Wednesdays, we do a soup day with homemade soup and on Mondays we do uh, a pasta dish and people can come in and have that, talk to everybody else, make friends, be in a warm, safe place, um, discuss any problems they may have, but more importantly actually have a hot meal that's, you know, got value and nutrition. Um, That really is to us, very important to be able to help the community in that regard. But, you know, if we're going to help the community, we need to do something that is materially more than just tea and a biscuit. Mm. Um, Luckily, we have a couple of companies locally who actually help us with that. We have a supermarket that uh, gives us bread. We have a tyre company that... uh, gives us money every every month um, we also have a large manufacturing company that supports us as well so we can actually afford to do that within our budget um, it is very important I mean I can't remember a time in my lifetime I'm 69 now where we've had this just appalling situation where mm-hmm. people cannot afford nutrition um, mm-hmm. It's appalling. Mm. So how many people on average attend these um, uh, soup evenings uh, on Wednesdays? Well, we, we do it um, at lunch times. Okay. Um, uh, the majority are older people. And uh, we serve between about 40 and 60 people during, okay. that, during that time, over the sort of three or four hours that we actually operate that. Um, I mean, I only have two part-time salaried staff because we are a small charity. Uh, so everybody else that works for us are volunteers who are very dedicated, um, do the cooking and the serving and everything else. So, you know, it's, it is a community project. Right. And it's something that we're very proud to be able to do. Sure. I mean, uh, this weekend, we actually celebrated um, 50 years of Barney Mo Village Hall. Uh, because it was built 50 years ago. It was originally owned by Gateshead Council. Now, 
the last four years, we took it over. Uh, we have a 30-year lease, and uh, we are a charity. So we have to be very careful with our finances because, obviously, we only get income from groups that use us, um, a few commercial groups that use us, and also blood donors, uh, NHS blood donors use us a lot because we have a very large hall and uh, a very good venue for them. So that's basically what adds to our finances. Um, we just have to make do with what we can sure. get. So, Andrew, uh, do you think uh, some people that actually end up coming to those um, uh, those uh, afternoons uh, are coming just for social reasons, or do you think there is actually poverty at the uh, at the base of this? There's definitely poverty. There's, mm. there's no doubt about it. Um, but I think, in terms of looking at mental health and things like that, mm. is it's a great opportunity for people who may be feeling relatively isolated with the problems that they have to actually come together, um, talk to other people that are in the same situation. Um, uh, I think from the mental health side of it, it's, um, it's beneficial as well as actually being able to give people, you know, a bit of relief during the week to um, actually not have to worry about what they're putting on the table. Um, that is the important thing about it, because I think, you know, if, if we can maintain the community, that's, you know, it takes precedent over everything else. Yeah, so Andrew, what other services do you think uh, should be added to the warm spaces um, uh, you know, in order to aid easy uh, access for people? Well, I mean, it would be lovely if we could actually have a transport service to actually bring people into the hall. But to coordinate that is virtually impossible and to finance it is even harder. So we have to really just work with the local population who can access the hall. And obviously... You know, as the weather gets harder and gets colder, that's maybe a lot more difficult for the older members of the community. Um, but I don't know quite how we actually manage to do that because there just isn't the finance there to actually make that happen. Right. Um, do you think we, uh, if the finances work, uh, to be made available, uh, providing services like uh, you know even overnight stays or something like that would be helpful. Um, I don't think that's a practical option. Basically, so you, when you're in a uh, village hall sort of area, there isn't sort of any space for actually accommodating people overnight. Um, we, as I say, we have a large hall. The hall itself has a fire rating of 400 people, so actually getting people in isn't a problem. But uh, trying to do anything in terms of overnight stay is just not a doable situation because we are very busy with user groups and things like that. And uh, we just don't have the facilities to do that. In terms of poverty, though, looking at it holistically, do you think there would be a need for such a service? I mean, whether or not you can provide it? Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure. Right. I mean, you know, everybody has their own households. Uh, 
Right. And um, it's it's a matter of the fact that people are having massive problems actually mm-hmm. paying for their heating and everything else. Mm-hmm. And we've really yet to see what the government are going to do in terms of helping people. And I think it's fatuous to just say, okay, we're going to give everybody in the UK X amount of money to pay their their heating bills when a lot of people can still afford it um, and it needs to be focused far more on people who are on benefits or you know are being financially supported anyway um, than people that are independently financially okay Excellent. Thank you very much um, uh, for joining us, um, Andrew. Uh, Really a pleasure, and uh, thank you for making us wiser today. It's been a pleasure, and I hope that we will see um, our community flourish. Excellent. Yes, we hope and pray for that as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, and have a great day. So that was uh, Andrew Brownsill, who is the chairman of Bali Village Hall in uh, Gateshead. Um, Staying in Gateshead, uh, let me move uh, straight on to Philip Donovan, who is the secretary for Bensham Court Court Tenants and Residents Association. Um, uh, He lives in a high-rise block of flats in Gateshead, and they use the community lounge there to provide services, including warm space uh, for everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Peace with you. Uh, thank you for joining us, Philip. Walaikum assalam. Um, excellent. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Philip, once again. What? Um, how did the idea of uh, warm spaces <clears throat> come to you? The, I- the idea came uh, back in June. All right. Uh, and it, w- it was a discussion in Gator Council. Um, and we knew that the cost of living crisis was going to hit around this time. So um, Gateshead Council decided to start these warm spaces. And what they did, they um, asked people if they would like to provide them. We did. We were already up and running because we have a, a food bank with a great social um, scheme here. And um, the, we were given £500 to, to start up um, the warm space. Um, it's proven very popular. It's increasing week on week, um, which is which is sad to say, actually. Um, but I, I mean, just just listening to your previous call, I think it's important that um, we you know what sort of area this is. Um, it's in the northeast of England, so it's a lot cooler up here. The weather hasn't been too bad recently, actually. Um, but it's it, we have significant deprivation. We're on 47th most deprived out of 317 local authorities in England. And right. almost half of the 22 wards ranking in the most deprived areas in the country. Mm. So it's a real poverty black spot, this. Mm. So you know? what, are you, uh, what do you provide um, uh, or what do you help with in terms of this warm space? Similar, so, uh, similar, similar to um, what, what the other ones, right. uh, what Barley Mao is doing, mm-hmm. uh, the Veterans Association, Age Concern. Um, we provide uh, hot food. Mm-hmm. Um, you can come watch a TV. We have a small library. We also have, um, the, uh, we, we have good company. They're nice people. Hmm. Um, so we know that social isolation is a killer, hmm. um, and especially especially in men my age, sixty in that sixties, uh, social isolation is a huge problem. So it's good to get people just meeting together, talking together, and relaxing, not sitting in a flat or a house 
worrying about how they're going to pay their bills. And how uh, frequently do you provide this? Um, is every, it on a week? every day. Oh, every it's every day, day. Monday, right. m- Monday, Monday to Friday. Right. From um, uh, 8.30 to 4.30. Oh, wow. Okay, right. So, wow. Okay, so you, you so basically breakfast, lunch, and, and, and probably uh, yes. supper as well. Yeah. We, 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 have a, we have a breakfast club. So if you want to go down and get your breakfast, which I may do soon after I've spoken to you, um, go down, get cornflakes, toast, tea, coffee. Uh, we'll do something at lunchtime. We'll do something later on as well. Right. Um, it depends on numbers, though. You know, Catering. And and this would be only for the residents of the uh, Bencham Court um, uh, Resident Association. No, 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 not at all. Okay. There is a there is a directory on the Gated Council website of um, of all the home spaces in the in the borough. I think the last count I seen was fifty three home spaces. Wow. So. So, I mean, they're all over the place. So, if anybody wants to come, and we have had people walk in off the street, can I come here for a cup of coffee? Can I sit here and get warm? Hmm. We've had that. Yeah. Wow. And um, just give us a sense of how many people do you usually get on average uh, on a day? Um, we can have... Well, our, our numbers are, are up with, with, on parity with Barley Mow. Um, what easy 70, 80 a week. You know, people are in and out all the time. They don't sit there all day. Nobody sits there all day. Um, mm. But people are in and out. So we could have between 10 and 15 a day. And that's amidst everything else that's going on. Mm. And uh, let me ask you the same question I asked um, Andrew. Do you think if... If you extended the services to staying overnight, that would be a help as well. It, it, it's 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 impractical yeah, because our our communal block, right? Um, our communal lounge is right next to the the tower block itself. But it is so, open. The service, as you're saying, is open to other people as well. Yeah, yeah. If, pe- if people wanted to come in, yeah. I mean, the thing is, we we'll keep it open as long as we need to hmm. at night. Hmm. Just hmm. there hasn't been the need yet. Right. Thing is, there's a there's a you know, we haven't had a bad winter for a few years. If we have a bad winter, we're go- there's going to be serious problems up here. We know there is. So yes, we've got to, mm-hmm. we, we've got to head them off. Um, if I, I don't think we'll ever have the um, the need to open where people stay there during the night, but we, we'll react to to uh, things as they happen. Hmm. Yeah, I I hear you absolutely. I think we yeah, we were already what uh, at the end of October, and if you if you're saying you're you, you're already busy, yeah, uh, I one can only imagine what it'll be like in December and January. So yeah. Um, yeah. so thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Any anything that you that you think we can help you with, our listeners can help you with. Well, I think uh, what, what the message I would like to get out is if the, there is nobody coming to help us. And I mean, as a general community, as a population of this country, mm-hmm. people aren't going to help us. The government aren't going to help us. The government have helped create this. And I'm sorry to sound political, but it is a political issue. Mm-hmm. There's nobody come to help us, so we'll have to do it ourselves. So, if we do have a bad winter, people have got to create communities. That's what we've done here, to look after the most vulnerable. So, if, if there is... 
the bad winter that is predicted, mm. by the way, mm. people have got to come together and start these warm spaces where people are safe. Yeah. And that's it. Excellent. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Philip. Uh, really, it was, um, was a pleasure to speak to you. And really, you I, too. It's, it's, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. This is, uh, this is a big issue. And uh, you've certainly made uh, us wiser today and, and our audience as well. And I uh, wish you really all the best for all the great work that you're doing. Thank you very much. I love your radio station, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Thank Thanks. You. Excellent, Bye-bye. Philip. Bye-bye. That was uh, Philip Donovan uh, speaking to us um, uh, from Gateshead. Uh, I'm sure Zeb, I mean, it's very powerful. I mean, you've yeah, got to say, the community belief or the community structure is such an incredible and intrinsic part of our um, you know, being is that, you know, whenever there are hardships, you know, it's beautiful to see that, you know, these communities come together and provide the support to the local area that is so much needed. And I guess, I mean, it's, it is tough to say, um, but it's true. You know, we sometimes can't rely, uh, unfortunately, on the institutions that are there um, to help us. Uh, no, that's not always the case, but it's just, you know, our our nature is that, you know, we come together. Um because that's just how we uh, are constructed by the greatest architect, God. So um, I think it's very powerful. You know, the community belief overall, it's a um, the structure in, in itself. It's its incredible. And that's what Islam really presents, um, if we understand Islam from mm. a uh, religious point of view. Um, mm. You know, Islam is a, it's a religion which um, supports the belief of uh, community, of brotherhood, sisterhood, um, of coming together in um, hardship and indeed in ease, you know, not just when times get tough, uh, but through thick and thin. Um, because that is the, um, the discipline and the overall understanding that Islam presents. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Islam isn't Islam about two things only, which is Hakukullah uh, and Hakukulibad. Hakukullah meaning rights of God and Hakukulibad meaning rights of humanity. Yeah. So uh, that's, you know, in a nutshell is 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 what Islam is all about and and rights of humanity, rights of uh, of people around you, rights of um your fellow citizens. That is um, uh, is is uh, is paramount in Islam. It is indeed. It is indeed. Um, there's no point us praying five times a day, mm. you know, reciting the Holy Quran, and then we don't even care about our neighbours right. or you know look after our society. You know, both things go hand in hand because one helps the other, um, and one is equally as important as the other. Um, so. You know, it's and it's not just Islam. You know, it's various other religions, but we believe that Islam is that complete picture you know the, it's which um, or that rather that complete puzzle which presents itself in its uh, most perfect form um, so you know with that we'll take a short break and after the break we'll continue with this segment and um, understand the the, the greater um, understanding of what Islam presents of the community structure
أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Life of Muhammad, peace be upon him. High moral qualities. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was always very patient in adversity. He was never discouraged by adverse circumstances, nor did he permit any personal desire to get a hold over him. It has been related that his father had died before his birth, and his mother died while he was still a little child. Up to the age of eight, he was in the guardianship of his grandfather, and after the latter's death, he was taken care of by his uncle, Abu Talib, both on account of natural affection and also because he had been specially admonished in that behalf by his father. Abu Talib always watched over his nephew with care and indulgence, but his wife was not affected by these considerations to the same degree. It often happened that she would distribute something among her own children, leaving out their little cousin. If Abu Talib chanced to come into the house, on such an occasion, he would find his little nephew sitting apart, a perfect picture of dignity, and without a trace of sulkiness or grievance on his face. The uncle, yielding to the claims of affection and recognizing his responsibility, would run to the nephew, clasp him to his bosom and cry out, Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Such incidents were not uncommon, and those who were witnesses to them were unanimous in their testimony that the young Muhammad, peace be upon him, never gave any indication that he was in any way affected by them, or that he was in any sense jealous of his cousins. Later in life, when he was in a position to do so, he took upon himself the care and upbringing of two of his uncle's sons, Ali, peace be upon him, and Jafir, peace be upon him, and discharged this responsibility in the most excellent manner. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, throughout his life, had to encounter a succession of bitter experiences. He was born an orphan, his mother died while he was still a small child, and he lost his grandfather at the age of eight years. After marriage, he had to bear the loss of several children, one after the other, and then his beloved and devoted wife, Khadija, died. Some of the wives he married after Khadija's death died during his lifetime, and towards the close of his life, he had to bear the loss of his son, Ibrahim. He bore all these losses and calamities cheerfully, and none of them affected in the least degree either his high resolve or the urbanity of his disposition. His private sorrows never found vent in public, and he always met everybody with a benign countenance and treated all alike with uniform benevolence. On one occasion, he observed a woman who had lost a child, occupied in loud mourning, over her child's grave. He admonished her to be patient and to accept God's will as supreme. The woman did not know that she was being addressed by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and replied, If you had ever suffered the loss of a child as I have, you would have realized how difficult it is to be patient under such an affliction. The Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, observed, I have suffered the loss not of one but of seven children, and passed on. Except when he referred to his own losses or misfortunes in this indirect manner, he never cared to dwell upon them, nor did he permit them in any manner to interfere with his unceasing service to mankind and his cheerful sharing of their burdens. Allah, Allah, Akbar, Allah.
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum, peace uh, and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live uh, show from the Southland Studios of uh, Voice of Islam. This morning we're talking about the warm spaces um, provided by various local communities across the UK. Um, before before uh, the break, we tried to get in touch with Ian McClink, uh, McClintock, um, but we were not able to. Let's see if we are able to uh, get in touch with him uh, now. Uh, good morning, Ian. Can you hear us? I can indeed. Oh, excellent. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Ian. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Um, so, uh, uh, please give us your perspective on the importance of um, uh, warm spaces. We've spoken to a couple of other people this morning. Uh, how critical do you think is the need in your local area? Um, well, I live in Buckinghamshire, um, mm-hmm. which is really quite well off. But in actual fact, people don't really appreciate it. That in areas in Aylesbury, there is, the deprivation is as bad as it can be in central London. Mm. So, so there is um, a big need in in your area as well. Yes, <clears throat> I think I think the demand is 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 greatest in some of the big cities, places like London, Manchester, Birmingham. Um, but it but it's everywhere. The, the the crisis is impacting increasing numbers of people. Right. So, uh, what um, sort of um, services are you providing at the moment? Uh, well, I support the charity sector generally by running Charity Excellence, which is a website. Um, there are half a million charities in the UK, um, most of them very, very small, and an awful lot of Muslim charities. Um, and there's a lot of help and advice out there, but they don't know where to find it. So I've built a system that's very quick and simple to use, it's completely free, and basically it enables charities to find all sorts of support for fundraising and digital, as well as finding uh, donations and donations of things like food, etc. Um, and it's been optimised, so it, it especially works for ethnic minority groups and it will work particularly for small charities and so it helps them to help others rather than, than, than helping people in poverty directly. Right. Uh, and finally, Ian, uh, you mentioned Muslim charities. Which ones are you working with and, and what sort of role are they playing? I've worked with an awful lot of Muslim charities and I'm, I'm just astonished by what they do. Um, I mean, one example of that is is I was working with uh, a very senior surgeon in the NHS, and he was working really long hours at the hospital du- during COVID, and every night he and his wife came home and held free online consultations with poor people in India. Mm-hmm. Um, he also worked with hospitals. He sourced a, a key piece of equipment costing £10,000, had it shipped to India. He then flew over and trained the staff how to use it. And he paid for absolutely everything out of his own pocket. Um, I mean, I said to him, I'll, I'll get you some media attention and, and promote what you're doing. And he said, no, 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 no. Um, he felt that what he did was what he should do as a Muslim. And it wasn't something to be thanked for. Um, and I think that really captures the Muslim attitude to charity, that 
huge generosity of spirit um, combined with humbleness. Um, and I, I know, obviously, as a surgeon, he was well off. Mm. But I hear so many stories. And, and the Muslim population is economically not as well off as the general population. Mm-hmm. But they give far more to charity. Um, I think donations during Ramadan last year by the UK community was something like £150 million. So mm-hmm. we're all celebrating Christmas and fundraising. Mm-hmm. But Ramadan is just astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and every year I try to join in. So um, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Islam. Yeah. And uh, last year a young student contacted me and wanted me to establish a charity uh, for poverty because that's what her dad had always wanted. But she didn't have any money. Uh, and so she asked me if I could keep the price down. Um, so I invoiced her for the full amount and gave her a hundred percent zakat donation. Mm. I, I even dated the invoice for tenth night in the hope that Allah would, um, <laughs> would forgive me for that. Um, but the, it, it's going to impact everyone. There are councils and charities creating warm hubs across the country in places like community centres and libraries. Um, and and it will be needed more than ever because the impact of inflation is is driving mm. up the cost, but particularly things like food and energy. But but what some people don't appreciate is for those who are poor, a much higher percentage of what they spend goes on food and energy. Mm. So the the impact of the price increases are actually hitting the poorer people much harder than those who are well off. Right, and it was. An absolute pleasure to speak to you. Please do well, keep up the great can work. Can I finish yeah, sure. very quickly? Sure. If people are looking for help, mm-hmm. and I know there are so many, turn to us and Citizens Advice. Both of them have fantastic websites to support people through the, the crisis. Turn to us have a helpline that you can call and citizens advice I have branches in most local areas and you can book a call and go along there are people out there ready and willing to help brilliant Ian thank you again and uh, uh, I'm so happy that we were able to connect to you and thank you and then thank you to everyone in the Muslim community for what we're doing we need you more than ever at the moment Oh, thank You're you. Absolutely that, brilliant. That, that's thank so you. kind. Thank you very much once again. Have a have a great day, week, and the rest of the year. And you. Goodbye. Bye bye. So that was Ian McClintock, who is um, from Charity Excellence. Um, um, really, um, what a great uh, guy to speak to. So let's. Um, uh, we only got about five minutes to go. Um, can you quickly dilate upon two things, really? You, you before we. Um, I took on uh, Ian. You were talking about the, um, uh, the the importance of helping your neighbor in Islam. Can you dilate upon that a little bit? And maybe this this uh, whole spirit of uh, of charity and the importance of charity in Islam as well. So these two elements are a fundamental part of our religion, um, and you know, as religious individuals. You know, we believe that the commandments of Allah are very much so sacred and revered. Um, and they have to be respected and adhered to. And, you know, once something, you know, the, on the one hand you have the law, which naturally all of us abide and, and try our best to abide by. 
Um, but when there are commandments from Allah the Almighty, um, commandments from a religious point of view, it takes a greater um, sense of responsibility from the individual who follows said religion, and there's a greater level of um, the greater level of trying to commit to um, enacting, you know, said commandments because of the implications that are um, stated. So. One of those commandments, you know, as we were talking about earlier, were the respect and indeed the reverence that is shown to our neighbours. You know, neighbours um, don't necessarily mean our in, uh, immediate neighbours, but the people around us, um, the people that build the fabric of our society, and to make sure that we respect, you know, show the utmost um, uh, reverence towards those people um, in our daily um, outings and indeed in our daily interactions with uh, other people um, you know by simply asking how they are and um, what they are up to and making sure that their welfare is um, of our um, the top of our list you know? and that is how a strong community is built you know upon these um, fundamentals and the second point is charity, you know, which really go hand in hand. And charity being a huge part of what Islam teaches us. You know, there's so many rights which have both been given to neighbours and indeed for those people that are unfortunately um, stricken by austerity and poverty. And you know, it's it's very much so important that we don't forget about those people and these initiatives which so many people are taking up because of the cost of living crisis. Uh, you know, it's fantastic to see, but it's the reason Islam has promoted all of these, you know, initiatives to go out um, out of the individual's way, out of your own way, and try and help and look after other people, um, because that is at the heart and at the core of what Islam teaches, um, and in, indeed it puts the welfare of others before our own, and um, you know that's what we find. Or, within the early days of the you know religion of islam uh, upon its exception whereby regardless of what your religion where your religious affiliations were and regardless of what you know um, ethnic background you belong to you know one thing was you know, amongst many other things was assured that they were to be um, looked after those people that were indeed um, in, an, in an unfortunate circumstance so this is the uh, the beauty of Islam that it incentivizes us to make sure that we look after those people that would otherwise be very much so um, struggling and indeed in a spare in, in in a state of despair and you know, that's the duty of every Muslim um, and it's the instruction of Allah the Almighty um, and we've been given this you know this opportunity now you know through the cost of living crisis to try a level best to make sure that we um, ask of our neighbours, you know, ask of our dear ones, our close ones, and make sure that they are okay. And if not, then we provide the necessary help and support that we can. Um, because, you know, as mentioned before, it is the duty of the Muslims.
Excellent uh, uh, for that uh, Islamic uh, perspective, Imam Shahzeb Uthar. That brings us to the end of the show this morning. I must thank our producer, Faiza Chima, researchers, Faiza Mansoor, Ruksana Nasser, uh, excellent tech support uh, from Mr. Akib, uh, my fellow presenters, Imam Shahzeb Uthar, and Imam Daniel Ahmed, uh, myself, Daniel Zia. Until next week, until next Monday, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Nine o'clock news is next. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam.